RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast. My name is Jamie Bain and it's great to be back for a new year and some new podcasts. Today it's with Nick Lumley, strength and conditioning coach with Scotland Sevens and soon to be head of SNC at uh, Edinburgh Rugby. Um, I don't know if he announced it in the podcast, but um, he, he mentioned it. It, sh- it should be out there now. Uh, but really good podcast, loads of great information again as always and um, a great discussion on periodization and monitoring and and issues uh that nick sees traveling uh all over the world with scotland seven so give it a listen and let us know what you think hi nick welcome to the rugby renegade podcast uh why don't we start by um just sort of explaining to the listeners how you got into strength and conditioning some of the the sports and, and teams you've worked with uh yeah well good thank you for having me um i kind of started like a lot of people did i guess um i Left uni, I did my NSCA, so the CSCS, I did all that. Um, did a little bit of shadowing for maybe four, five, six months in athletics. Um, spent a fair bit of time with various different UK-based coaches um, and kind of hoping that was enough to get a job. And a few job applications later, I realised it, it wasn't. So I kind of committed myself to working for free for a year and I went to um, applied to a few places. And back then, that was, what, 2008? 2007 people were quite um you know people would bite your hand off to have a, a you know a sort of reasonably well qualified um sort of young person in to work for free for the year whereas nowadays it's, it's a lot harder to even get that because there's so many people looking to do it but back then i had a few different opportunities and i went with one at the wiu um, i did work with their national team for a full international season uh, mainly because the people i was working with i worked with a guy um craig white who at the time was a uh, was uh, just left uh, left Leicester where he's very successful in Wasps and I'd heard a lot about him and then Mark Bennett who had also heard really good things about and then there was Fergus Connolly there so I had three really good people to share an office with and then in between the international campaigns they would send me out to the Dragons to to help out the the, the S&C team at the Dragons and I worked with some really good guys there and got a lot of exposure to a lot of coaching hours there and I just did that for a year really and that um, Probably learnt more in that year than I learnt from you know, three years as an undergrad, um, purely because it's you're so applied to what you actually need to do and what you actually need to know and be able to implement. And um, yeah, that got me started. Um, from there, I went to the SIS in Scotland for a what was a six-month contract. I was actually didn't get the job I went for. I came the second, um, and they turned out um, through you know bad luck. A guy up there, Scotty Crawford, um, broke his hip and had to have a hip replacement and or uh, the hip replacement, I had to have surgery, but it was off work for six months, and so they rang me up out of nowhere and said, we got a job, um, only real fallback is we need you to start on Monday, and I think this is a Thursday they rang me, so I packed my bags and went, and me up in Scotland, um, and then towards the end of that contract, uh, Gloucester approached me, they are looking for a number number three to run their academy and assist with the first team, um, Ben Surfler had just gone back to Australia, um, and I replaced him, basically, that was Mark Bitkin, who Turned out he was, uh, you know, a, a pretty close friend of Craig's um, at, at Wales, and um, Craig had put me in contact with him. I'd actually cold called Mark out of nowhere about the year, the, the year before when I was at Wales looking for different jobs, and 
he kept my CV on file and yeah, he rang me and you know I went down and met them and that was that. Um, and then from yeah Gloucester, I had three seasons of Gloucester, which was really good fun. I left there, went to went to to Bath Uni and uh, worked with um, various different Olympic sports there, but predominantly judo, track and field rowing. Um, really enjoyed that. I learned a huge amount from that more than I ever probably thought I would do. Um, the sort of 30 hours coaching, often one on one a week, it really tests your actual core skills. And from there, I left. I went through the Commie Games. Um, quite lucky that Commie Games went quite well for my athletes and kind of reached a point where it was. I didn't really know what was what I could do next in that job and had the option to go to Scotland there. So I took it up and moved up to Scotland again and uh, coaching the sevens team. And I'm what been here just over two years so we're for the regular season I guess you're mid-season but for sevens we're just starting really and we're just at the start of my third season on the sevens and, and that's me and obviously people are gradually um you know it's it's public knowledge now I'm leaving end of season to take over as head of SNC at Edinburgh which I'm looking forward to um and which will be in June so that's kind of how the last that's what the last nine years for me how that's um Oh, it's unraveled, but yeah, it's been it's been pretty good to me. I've had uh, a lot of good experiences, and been very lucky to meet a lot of good people who've helped me on the way. Yeah, and obviously, congratulations on on the new role with Edinburgh, and, and all the best for that. Um, while we have um, when we have guests on, we we try and get uh, an insight into their sort of strength and conditioning philosophy, which you know it, it could be uh, you know an hour long answer, but in a kind of nutshell, what what would you say your philosophy is? Oh, I guess it's changed a lot. I've been because I've worked under good people I guess I've always kind of taken things from them but these days I just try and find what gives us the biggest bang for our buck and what works but and I guess the real thing about what what I do at the moment and what how my programs are set up is we we try and constantly measure what we're doing and we'll track what we're doing so we know kind of what's working but it's one size doesn't fit all um, we have a few real core competencies that I think guys have to be good at and I track guys' progress to that and how I get guys to improve it, to, you know, to, to, to improve and develop his qualities is individual. Um, I, I don't subscribe to everyone has to do this, that or the other. I think everyone needs to be a certain profile. In sevens, there's a certain profile we need to be in and that's across any sport, you know, whether we're dealing with long jumpers and vaulters and things like that and athletics or rowers or judo, you know, what does that sport require and what gives what are the best ways to develop that and I keep things quite simple simple things done very well 99% of the time um, gives you the best results and I guess that's a little bit of a waffly answer there but um, in a nutshell I guess that's how I've how I've evolved is get the basics done really well monitor what you need to be good at and then you know track your progress and if things aren't working don't be don't be ashamed to admit that and to, and to adapt and change yeah, definitely assessing, you know, as you go along is uh, really important. So um, you said that those things you monitor, could you give an example of some of the things you might monitor? Yeah, so the big thing for um, us with Sevens has been, or the group of players I've got at the moment was speed. Um, huge thing for us. So every week we'll go through timing gates uh, two, three, sometimes four times in a week, um, but certainly twice a week. As a part of our core monitoring, start and end of each week, as part of our weight sessions, we'll go through 10 meter gates. Um, I've got a database of you know, two and a half years of data of each player of them doing 10 meter sprints. We track where they are in pre-season, how it moves when you increase volume of weights lifted in the gym versus when you decrease the volume, increase intensity when the running volumes are higher. All these sorts of things 
we track it, but I'm a huge believer that for our squad, we need to be quick. Another thing we want to be, we've worked hard, we want to be a bit bigger. Um, and so we monitor body weight, body composition, we monitor speed. And how we make players quicker depends on depends on their makeup. You know, I've got a I've got a lad that's um, Fijian who's qualified for Scotland through residency versus some guys that are Kiwis for, or Kiwi born and who qualify through through relatives and other ones who are, you know, grown up and lived in Scotland all their lives and they've got very different backgrounds, very different training histories. And so, you know, how you develop them and how you make them better, what the core things are, it is very very individual. I I like to work with the individuals, get to know them. What is it that makes this person improve? What are the core things that that, that that this person responds well to? And then, and then we train them. And you could you'd probably look at my programs. You'd probably say they're pretty boring, to be fair. And I couldn't argue with you. But we try and find what works for that individual and what works the best. And if you can identify what works the best, and I'm pretty uh, pretty persistent at main, at, 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 um, I'll be pretty persistently chasing that method until someone can convince me that. Or I can convince myself that something else might actually produce better results, and I'll you know, repeat that process. But you know, that's that's kind of how we work. We've got a we've probably got five or six things we measure. The big thing for us is probably we've got um, it's probably the speed though. It's a huge thing for us. Like max strength is important, and we do track it. But max strength is only useful to us if we can transfer it to speed. And we're very lucky in the facilities we train at. You know, there's two or three we use, and they've all got indoor tracks. I mean, the shortest one's 50 meters, and so. We got very good facilities to, to develop speed, and so we put a huge emphasis on that. And if some guys respond well to squatting, that helps them sprint fast and great. Other guys don't, then we do something else. It just depends on the individual. Yeah, definitely. I think you're right. If, if you're monitoring it regularly, you you can see, you know, when you need to, you know, change your intervention or you know find out what works for some people, and not for others. Uh, if you're not monitoring it, it's kind of, you know, f- finger in the air, just you know, yeah, guessing almost. Um, and also, it's interesting you say about. Um, I think coaches sometimes worry about if it's a boring program, they feel like they're going to kind of entertain the athlete in some way. But if you get them good results, then you know they'll be happy. Yeah, the hundred percent. The biggest, the biggest. Um, I'm very lucky that the group of players I work with are very good trainers. They're very, very hardworking guys that do generally just want to improve. And we, our our speed times have moved consistently in the, in the right direction for the last two years through through their hard work and when that happens and they, you know they, they 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 see that happening and you know when we set our speed stuff up we've got we, we've paid, spent a bit of money on a big scoreboard so every time someone runs through the gate it's in it's in it's in the light so it's in writing up there so everyone can see it um, you know everyone knows what everyone else is running it becomes very very competitive um, you know and, and guys see themselves improving most of the boys know what each other's PBs are as well as their own it, it, that that culture develops itself almost and you know the the guys buy into the training very quickly when they see it improving another thing as well with speed is I personally believe it's very important but on top of that I've never met an athlete in any running based sport that doesn't want to get quicker yeah and um yeah. Sorry, uh, you, you obviously said speed is hugely important for sevens, but like, how, how else do you approach um, training differently for sevens? Obviously, it's it's a very different game in terms of the, the demands of it. Yeah, the the conditioning we've got our own kind of philosophies on it, or I guess evolved over time. Um, I think the, I, I I don't know what I don't know a huge match what other teams do. I know what England do very well. So pretty good mates with Dan, but the. Each team does run. We don't emphasise the aerobic component that much. Um, you know, I, I probably, you know, I hold my hand up. I've aerobically probably made them almost weaker in my two years here. That when I arrived, 
the, the 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 you know they were running very good yo-yos. There was guys running twenty ones and stuff on the yo-yo, but we were on the field and we felt that we were. And when the intensity of the game raised, we weren't necessarily in condition to to deal with it. And so I probably made them a lot worse at aerobically at yo-yos, but we still retain a level that that, that we um, feel acceptable. If I think if you're aerobically if you're weak, you're going to suffer. But having a surplus aerobically, I don't know how much it benefits us because ultimately the games aren't that long. Um, they, they do help you recover, of course, and you, you need to have a decent level. But the nature of the training you do anyway, in terms of we do seven on seven in training and stuff, like this afternoon, the guys did did what? They did nine 90-second nine um, 7v7 bursts. You're going to get a rope with 30 seconds in between. You're going to get aerobically very fit from doing that anyway. And so we don't emphasize the aerobic component. We... Um, we look at our anaerobic pathways. We look at our ability to um, mobilise lactate into, you know, our, our ability to move our lactate threshold, and then we look at our ability to buffer into, you know, how, you know, what are sort of going through some longer efforts and how we can, how effectively we can produce sort of longer bouts of high energy movements and whether we can get better at that because ultimately you watch sevens, most most sort of phases of play maybe 30 seconds long, then you get a little break, but. And so the the ability to mobilise and to clear in those rest periods and go again is really really important. But on top of that, some of the really big moments of the side game sometimes they're 90 second, two minute phases of play. And so in, in that period, you're producing huge amounts of energy and doing huge amounts of work. And so it's they're the, they're the components we put all our effort into. Um, beyond that, um, you know, in 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 15s, uh, I know a lot of people that probably emphasise the aerobic side more. Um, you don't need to go through the same running intensity. Um, the recovery period is a bit more generous, and so it, it influences how you condition the guys, how fit the guys need to be. Um, you can obviously carry more body weight in in 15s um, because obviously the running again the running volumes are lower. So those things are different, but ultimately the games aren't that different. And if if more 15s players wanted to play sevens or or tried sevens you'd probably find the game would probably evolve and you'd actually realise the typical sevens athlete might change slightly. Um, the reason why I think some of them are smaller, I'm thinking of some of the really top attackers on the World Series, some of our players, but also some of the other team's players, they're often quite small. But not necessarily that smaller guys are necessarily better suited to sevens. I think it's because smaller guys sometimes are prejudiced against in 15s, rightly or wrongly, and so they, that's some of those guys go into sevens. But... Now, there's there's many ways the game's different, but I think a lot of it as well is the off field. Uh, playing six games in two get in, in two days is um is tough, and a lot of that stuff off the field, um, how you recover, how you eat, all those strategies, you know, ergogenic aids, things like that become even more important in sevens because physically it is so demanding. Yeah, and that that touches nicely on my next question, which is um, regarding your uh, blog article at HLMR Media um, about the you know the difficulties of travelling and you know playing multiple games uh, and and the monitoring you've done. Would you like to sort of enlighten us on that a bit? Bruce, um yeah. So we they actually it's kind of evolved over time. I um, when I first came into it two years ago and started travelling with them. Um, you realise it's a stress, but how do you monitor this? So I actually reached out to people a lot cleverer than me, and it's actually Martin Bushite that, that gave me some ideas on the heart rate stuff we do, who said that you won't find any data on this because no other sport's stupid enough to travel in that close proximity to performance. Anyone else that's in Australia, they're going to go two weeks in advance. And, you know, we go, we're going to go to New Zealand in under three weeks' time, and we're going to travel on a Friday, land on a Sunday morning and play the next Saturday. It's, it's tough. And so... Um, we started using stuff 
at home as a training load monitor, then also look, just playing around looking at how we respond to travel. The theory is right that you're exercising heart rate. You could use HRV, and um, England are starting to do HRV with their stuff. Um, you, you can you can do that just as well. But the way our program set up is we have a group of core players who maybe nine of them plus a tenth guy who we have from the army who are core who are with us through the year and other guys dropping in out from the pro teams. And so I don't get consistent enough access to get enough, H, uh, enough HRV data. You probably need more experience that you probably need, you know, two or three months consistent data with three or four measures a week so you can establish coefficient of variation. You can establish some rolling averages and you can look at with a bit more a bit more confidence some of the changes and have a kind of a reference point to refer back to you don't really it's hard to establish that with our program but with an exercising heart rate we get very low cv of our data very very consistent outputs but we still get quite big changes and you probably only need two to three weeks of measuring some baseline stuff in the morning to be really to be pretty confident it's very very consistent you'll get a you know an average for that that athlete very quickly and you can establish what their CV is and you can then work on you know what is your smallest worthwhile change and what you're going to see is meaningful and what you're going to then see is a red flag you can establish all those things so much quicker than exercising heart rate so we just started doing it at home we do it twice a week at home so every Monday and Friday on our program we'll we'll in the morning we'll do weights <coughs> in the morning excuse me we'll do weights in the morning and we'll measure um, exercising heart rate and we'll measure um, um, we'll measure the 10 meter sprints alongside our normal kind of wellness so we use like a knee to wall sit and reach um we obviously measure body weight like everyone else does. We do a groin squeeze, um, then some ratings of energy and soreness. Um, and we do like a hand grip test as well, we do. And we've just got, again, same process. We've got a database of, we've got quite a lot now for our core guys the last couple of years, but guys come into the program and, you know, it's quite quickly established where the, what their average is and establish what their kind of ranges are for after heavy and light days. And you can establish, you know, a, a smallest worthwhile change pretty quickly. Um, and we also, you know, we do we do our basics around signal and noise and that kind of stuff. So we know, you know, is the data reliable? What cameras trust can we place on it? Uh, what's been quite good now is that in the last sort of year, um, the 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 um, Neil Potts and the other guys at SIU have um, introduced a lot of the stuff at the pro team. The pro teams are measuring stuff. So it's my first year here, we were kind of a new player would come in from a pro team. We'd have to start all our baselines, but now we're in a position that got a bit more unity across the pro teams where they they measure similar stuff to us. So you know, I can speak to Ash Jones at Edinburgh Studio at Glasgow, and they'll just send over other player coming in. They'll send over that player's data from the last two or three weeks, and it's pretty easy to to do. And so that has driven that's made things a lot easier. But you know, we measure this stuff at home, um, and then when we go away. We just, you know, same thing. We measure it in the mornings. Um, we measure the heart rate every morning. We've also got a jump we do um, every Monday, Friday, and every morning when we arrive. And we just started measuring it. And that's the same I'd say to anyone who's trying to monitor their athletes. Just have a look at it, measure it, see what you get. Don't be, don't expect anything, and just be open-minded to what you get. And you know, we we've done, and we've actually found now that when we travel to Dubai, we've had. You know, I've done the last two years going to Dubai. We almost had identical monitoring each, each from the two trips. Day one, we get a certain picture. Day two, you get a certain picture. Day three, you get a certain picture. And so it's made our planning a lot easier. Um, the younger boys are a bit different because younger guys, as I mentioned in that article, younger guys travel differently, it seems. But by and large, it's been quite consistent. And so you, you put plans in place with a bit of confidence, thinking, OK, the last time we went there, this happened. So we imagine we'll probably train on this day and this day and we'll kind of you know, distribute our loading in a certain way because of that and you know reasonably it's been reasonably consistent that 
it's each time we've got gone to certain places. Um, but there do things do get thrown up. When I, when I first started doing it, I thought a rise in heart rate would be a sign of fatigue and a drop would be a sign of good adaptation. But the more I've learned about it, that's not the case at all. You get these sudden, we get these sudden drops in heart rate, which are probably indicative of actual greater stress. Um, it, it's hard to point it to exactly to research behind it, but the big, the best indicator I found is potentially like a inhibited catecholamine release. So you whilst your body will you drag your body across the shuttles that we do for our heart rates, you're doing it on a lower heart rate because you're not releasing as much adrenaline because your body's in a state of stress. It's like this a bit like the HRV profile you get where you get these sudden um, sudden like you get a real drop you HRV or lower at the time then you get a sudden um, increase which you think oh, that's a good adaptation is actually not often, a lot of the time because your body just reaches a breaking point where it says you know what, enough's enough I'm just going to shut down and uh, I'm not sure we necessarily reached that level but it was it we first measured a drop in, in heart rate in New Zealand two years ago um, after a tournament where we'd gone pretty well we'd had a really stressful two days of playing we then measured the heart rate the morning after it drops and I was like that, that makes no sense at all we should be we should be stressed we've just got our lowest heart rates I've ever measured and back to the drawing board you realize actually what's going on and we've actually measured those drops now quite consistently over the last couple of years over certain periods traveling to Hong Kong is another one because it's our hardest travel eight hours east is a really difficult new circadian rhythm and so that always gives us drops after we measure it the morning after really hard contact and conditioning at home occasionally we see drops in players and sometimes when guys are suffering with illness we see it and so yeah, I mean, it's it's the actual details of that might not, might not interest all of your listeners, but the process is I would I would point I would urge people to point to is is to follow would be yeah, you know, have a look at what you want to measure, what you covering your bases, and then don't yeah don't don't prejudice yourself or expect to measure anything in particular because from my experience it's uh, it's very hard to it's very hard to predict or second guess what's going to happen, but be prepared to react to whatever it throws up at you, and that's kind of what we've done. We've evolved it over time. Um, put adding in jumps have been quite useful because they they recover at a different speed to the the heart rate. I think the heart rate stuff we measure on the road is more linked to circadian rhythm, whereas the jumps seem to be linked more to your neuromuscular system your ability to express power. So, you know, after a, probably 48 hours in location, we tend to find that the the jumps improve and they get back to baseline, whereas the heart rates will sometimes recover in that time. But in a in a tough location like a Hong Kong or in New Zealand. It might take an extra couple of days, and so it just affects slightly how we how we grade our training. Um, really interesting. We've got a lot of data looking to write up, um, but a fair amount of help from the guys at Aspatar Hospital, guy Pete Filer I talked about in the articles, but also a guy Andrew Murray who's actually moved to Oregon now, but who was at Aspire. So you know, having links to those guys has been good because they know a lot more than I do. And every time I confuse myself with what I'm measuring, I just kind of fire it over to those guys and. They've helped me out a lot with interpreting some of the data and doing a bit of the stats and numbers and analysis on it. So um, it's worked pretty well for us. I don't know how much of it I'll use in 15 or how I'll use it in 15s. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out how much of it I can do on a daily basis with a lot more players than I've got at the moment. But it's certainly the same the same process. But I'll certainly be looking to implement where we you might you know you try and cover your bases more into what you need to and then react to what you find. Yeah, and, yes. and what I said, what I found interesting was uh, what you said about. Obviously, the more experienced travellers, you know, <laughs> adapt have adapted and you know recover quicker, and it just highlights if you're monitoring it, then you can you can deal with your players on a more individual basis. Um, yeah, and and that's def- definitely the way forward. It's 
it's all that about you know knowing your players but if you've actually got data for it as well it, it just it makes it more powerful yeah it, it does I'm, I'm lucky our, our head coach is very interested in it as well he'll often you know come be knocking on my door in the hotels and asking what the monitoring is that day and asking what how the players are responding he's interested in it and um yeah it, it's it's been really useful like, i i there's no there's from a single there's not really any evidence out there like no one's ever really documented how how teams travel how different ages of people or different people different ages travel but also the, the influence of travel experience on performance and so you won't find anything on it and so only by measuring these things we've kind of found it and um you know, I, anecdotally, I you know I fight, feel myself. I can you know we go to New Zealand. I'll probably sleep okay and, and get over it fine within a couple of days. Whereas when I first started doing this, um, you know I found it really really difficult. It kind of knocked me out for four or five days. But this would be my what fourth trip to New Zealand, and so it's I've got to the stage now where you accumulate a bit of experience of doing it, and you just I don't know you you learn to travel better, you learn to sleep better. I think you relax a bit more. But yeah, like you say, the individual approach it gives you has been really useful for us because. Um, same way after tournaments um we've got certain players we find um i think it's by and large some probably our quickest players the more explosive ones they tend to take longer to recover after tournaments um whatever whatever reason that might be but we consistently observe it and so you know we'll people that don't know how sevens work you'll you know we'll say this next trip we'll go to new zealand we'll play saturday sunday in new zealand we'll fly to australia on the monday morning and we'll be in sydney the next weekend playing saturday sunday again so you've got a training week on the road, trying to recover from a sevens tournament and then get ready for another. So the recovery on week two is really, really important. And so, you know, certain guys at the start of that week two will, will do very little and some guys will do a bit more because they recover at different speeds. And again, that's something our monitoring has given us. Um, it kind of, you know, it, it highlights very quickly the speed that guys recover and how they recover. And so that's something we've probably brought in over the last 12 months is individualizing the recovery processes after, after tournaments because... It does vary quite a bit. Yeah, and and just out of interest, Nick, what what's your favourite tournament you've been to? Uh, oh well, uh, in terms of travel, exp- the experience and everything, and seeing the country, um, Cape Town's brilliant, and Hong Kong, the two that really. Uh, Vancouver was good. Um, it'll be better this year because they're opening the whole stadium. Last year it was just the bottom two tiers. It's a great city, Vancouver, but in terms of the, the whole experience, the cities and everything else, Hong Kong's the one because it's the whole kind of whole of Hong Kong set up for it. Um, but in terms of the tournament, Cape Town really appealed to me. Um, we've obviously got good memories of London, but because we, because we won it last year. But the, um, the in terms of the whole package of everything and the experience, I'd probably lean just towards Hong Kong. But yeah, it's hard to separate those two. Yeah, oh, lovely. Um, so uh, we spoke about your your. Your blog on HMR Media. You now you did another one um, about periodization, um, yeah. and it, well, why don't you sort of tell about it, and I'll sort of say my thoughts because yeah. I, I found it really interesting. I guess I probably should refer to that at the start when you're asking about philosophy because that probably outlines it better than I'm able to articulate it to you. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's it's it was more like I think people over I think people overthink things and try and. There's a big danger in what we do with the competition for jobs, and everyone, everyone's got a degree, everyone's got a master's degree, everyone's trying to show everyone how clever they are. But in reality, I think they sometimes miss the basic point. And the basic point I was making was, but it's, it, when you really, the more you get to understand training, the more you realise how simple it is. Um, the body adapts to stress, and whatever stress you place it under, the body will respond to meet that stress better next time it's exposed to it. So, if you, if 
ultimately, if you go and do the gym and do a lot of squats, you're getting better at squats. That's all you're getting better at. You're getting better at timing the movement. You're getting better at the, you're getting better at absorbing force in the eccentric phase of retaining energy, reusing energy, and you know, and and executing the movement in a in a balanced and coordinated fashion. And you, you know, you've got motor recruitment involved in that. You've in terms of rate coding, in terms of maximum recruitment, you've got you've got um and you've got your inhibitory systems that will hopefully um, dampen them down slightly. You've got, you know, obviously referring to afferent and efferent feedback, all these little things, there's loads you can point to that all affect your ability to do a squat. But all you're really doing is making your body better at that movement. But we do it because, you know, we hope that's going to improve the jump height or your ability to sprint. But it's not a direct, it's just a relationship. People that are good at squats tend to be good at sprinting over 10 meters, for instance. But that's all it really is. Your body, your body gets exposed to a stress, and then it gets better at meeting that stress next time, and and and, and producing a movement or a skill, whatever you're developing. That's really the essence of what training is. If you train too hard, you need to recover. The person that trains the best is the one that does the most training and recovers from it ultimately. And then, you know, if you want to get bigger, then lift to failure. If you want to get stronger, then lift heavy weights. If you want to get fitter, then do aerobic work or anaerobic work, whatever it is you're limited by. That's what you get better at. How you organise all that, and you know, is that just you know? My point is, is that just common sense, or is that some clever periodization model? Because most of these things that people point to, and there's different squat programs. You've got your five three ones and all your stuff on websites like T Nation and stuff like that. It's all well and good, but I've never seen anyone take those programs and compare it to someone who just does, you know, just influence those basics. And shows me that the periodization or the structure, there's anything clever going on that makes that program better than just doing the basics. And if those programs do or don't work, I think it's because they either do or don't adhere to the basic principles. Yeah, definitely. I think I think the thing you've kind of highlighted is the consistency. If you if you do it consistently and you improve, um, and that's going to carry and and it's in something that carries over to your sport, then you're going to improve your, your sports performance. Whereas if you're trying to do different things or or you don't know what is going to improve your sports performance that's that's when it can all get lost i think yeah i think so and i think if you look at the you're right and if, if you look at the if you look at the the stuff people refer to in these the different periodization models that, that have been kind of around since probably the 60s or 70s guys like verkashansky that first um documented it and medvedev and people like that it's they were dealing with different populations to us like verkashansky is what i talk about in that article but he's dealing with top class long jumpers who reached a point where they weren't getting any better I mean how many of us ever take athletes to the point of diminishing returns where you know they literally stop responding to training because that's pretty much what he he reached you know they were they were just had to, the, the training they were doing was just maintaining them where they are so we had to reorganize things and he realized you had to intensify the stimulus and do more max strength sessions and closer proximity to each other to overload that aspect of the body in order to get positive adaptation and then do the explosive stuff and then do his kind of transfer special strength stuff and then in that order and yeah he got an effect but he also is very clear that unless you reach that point of diminishing returns and you don't necessarily need to go down that approach you know he would have done a bit more he done a bit more of a um, kind of conjugate kind of parallel approach as he called it where you do a bit of this that and everything together because your body probably your body's of the younger athlete or rugby player one strength session a week might be enough to make you stronger. Certainly two will be, you'd have thought, of most rugby players, in which case you can then do some you know, extra speed work, extra explosive, whatever you need to get better at, but you can group it together slightly differently. If that no longer works, then yeah, Verkashansky's stuff as he talks about is block training definitely would be a good solution. But 
I've just never, I've never met someone, I've never worked with anyone who's literally, generally doesn't respond to training. Yeah, and especially in rugby, I mean, you can probably think of some, you know, really good athletes who are rugby players who, if they weren't rugby players, they could probably get there. But because of the demands of training and, and playing week in, week out, they're not going to get to that level. So it's just yeah. consistently, as you say, working away at the basics. Yeah, I mean, I, I, spot on. I mean, I just, and it's, 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 it's and also, it's, it's a combination, I think, of ability, but also training history. It's, you know, you probably you could probably train like we do without full on like a track and field athlete would you know doing it full time for several years before you reach diminishing returns whatever your ability is and so you know I talk in the article I got to see very lucky to see guys like I saw um Greg Rutherford and DeGrasse training in the summer over at um in America and you know they train you know they do a strength day a power day a speed day you know through pretty much through the season and whether that's whether that's ideal or not I don't know but they reach pretty good level of performance through doing that and so um you know you could argue maybe they did they'd have would they have done more if they'd done another approach I don't know but it's, it's hard to argue the results those two got and so um you know I, would, I wouldn't necessarily copy their programs but it's um yeah it, it's I just, I just don't think it's periodization that makes a lot of these programs work or not it's whether they adhere to the basics or not and whether they they, they, whether they tick the right boxes and whether they incorporate the right fundamentals or not and if they do then programs tend to work and if they don't then they tend not to but I think I just think people try to overcomplicate it for whatever reason and it's a little bit misleading yeah definitely um, and it's probably what we've just spoken about uh, will make this question quite difficult we ask every guest on the podcast what do you think is the biggest mistake rugby players make when it comes to S&C and it could be what you've just said but you're going to have to say something different I'm afraid <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I would have originally said, yeah, following, um, yeah, um, following too strict, too rigid periodization. But I think the biggest thing players follow is, um, oh, that's a good question actually. Now, um, I'd probably go with overemphasizing um, certain aspects of the players. Get young, particularly younger players, they get it into their head. They, they look at the guys on TV and they try and follow that. And so your number eight looks at Kieran Reid, I want to be like him. Or they look at, you know, they, they look at, you know, a, whoever it might be, a Billy Bunapolo or a Stuart Hogg or whoever. And that's the guy I want to be. That's the guy I want to follow. Um, but ultimately, it's, it's what works for them isn't going to work, isn't necessarily work for you. We're all different. And I think we've, I think the times are moving on where there isn't a certain way that players or people have to train. It's about figuring out what works for you. And, People look at you look at uh, the top back rowers in the world. And you think, okay, they're all 105 kilos, most of them. Well, if you're if you if you're if you're 25 and you're walking around at 95 and you've got five, ten years trading history, you're probably never going to reach 105. Or if you do, you're probably not going to be a better player for it. And so I think players probably try and, or particularly players at the um, that are trying to break into the elite, they probably look at things like look at the elite guys at the elite end of the game and try and copy that. Whereas it's more about working out what's probably best for you. How are you going to be your best athlete? So I'd urge people to target performance outcomes more than anything else. So where are you right now? What's your 10-meter time? What's your 30-meter time? You know, what, what are your max strength levels like? What's your aerobic level like? How can I make them better? And also work out which ones of these are limiting me on the field. And then you develop those. And you're going to be a better player. I think trying to copy an image of, of what the top guys, what they are, and try and kind of, copy someone else I, I can't think of any sport where 
trying to copy other people helps help someone reach their potential yeah and i noticed you laughed when you said you know link it to performance outcomes but it is it is an issue like people sort of think oh i've just got to get fitter so they'll do you know a random running session i've got to get bigger so they'll just do hypertrophy sessions or you know a bodybuilding program yeah but yeah you're right it's got to be about performance and and that that is uh you know a massive mistake um they don't they sort of see things as separate entities as opposed to seeing i need to do the right thing to improve this part of my performance yeah i think that's also why you know it's no hiding the fact that rugby has a in the uk has a pretty bad drug problem not at the elite level the elite level if you, and I'm, I'm not speaking out of turn here if you go on the uk anti-doping website and look at current doping sanctions the number of non-elite rugby players on that list is shocking yeah by and large it's players that are looking at the elite end looking at you know guys that carry a lot of muscle mass that are pretty big and heavy guys that's what i need to be and so they take shortcuts you know, it's, it's indicative to me of that same culture of looking at the elite end and just trying to copy it, not understanding the process and the probably the five, ten years of work that's gone in to make that elite player what they are. And I think it's just it's a representation of the same thing you're talking about, where um, people, particularly younger or non-elite players, look uh, look at something on the TV or look at the elite end and just try and copy it without really understanding that it's a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, definitely. Um Last question, uh, next, I'm conscious of time. Um, what advice would you uh, give to someone trying to get into strength and conditioning? Oh, that's that's a good question. It's it's a, it's a very tough industry to get into. Looking back what it's like now versus when I was trying to break into it even nine years ago, it's changed so much. First thing I'd say to Owen is make sure you, make sure you really, really want it because there's a lot of other ways to earn a nice living and have a nice life without having to go through... Um, what you have to go through to get into strength and conditioning but if you do want it then awesome because it's a great job and it's so much fun it's very rewarding um the biggest advice is obviously everyone goes out and gets everyone now goes out and gets a degree everyone then goes out and gets a master's everyone then goes out and volunteers as much as they can at a local club or an institution whatever it might be but you know looking at yourself as you know with a hat of an employer on whether you're doing that at gloucester or i'm doing that you can if you advertise a job you're going to get probably 100 applicants and most of their CVs gonna look identical. And so if you're looking if you're looking to get an interview somewhere, you need to stand out. What is it about you? If you're a young coach, think what is it that's gonna make me stand out? What is it that I'm gonna do better than my competition? What's gonna make me what's gonna make me get that interview out of the other hundred applicants or the ninety-nine applicants out there? And then find out what that is and make sure you're blooming good at it because without that and so it's you know, it's there's other skills, industries moving and it's changing, like, you know, there's a other sports like like Australian rules football and NFL and sports that I've been lucky enough to have a little look at the last couple of years, they're they're employing people with really good analytics backgrounds, really good stats backgrounds. I'm sure that'll happen in rugby with the use of GPS and the different monitoring systems and clubs investing databases now and things like that. There's a big need for guys that have good analytical skills and good data handling skills alongside their core coaching. And guys that have got to get good at that, then that will make you very employable to, to clubs going forward because it's a skill set I think people are going to recognise and that if they don't already, they will do. There's something that's very useful, you know, things like strength diagnostics are very useful for some clubs. Um, you know, the, the other you know the other thing that strikes, that hits you very quickly now is, you know, the best teams out there are the teams that tend to keep their players fit. And so guys that are very good at the injury return to play side of things, teams that are very good at the, you know, um, injury prevention side of things, you know, those things are valuable. And if, if certain, if young coaches... 
I, you, you need to have the basics covered across the board because it's, it's going to be your job, it's going to be your bread and butter. But on top of that, I'd urge a young coach to just establish what it is I'm going to be good at and just put a bit more time into certain areas so you've, you've got a bit of a profile, a little bit of a niche because without that, you're going to struggle to get past the application process unless you're already interning at a club and you're in the right place at the right time. But it's hard to really plan for that to happen because you never know where the right place and what the right time is going to be. So you've got to you've got to kind of build yourself to be able to go in cold to a to a job somewhere and, and get the job on merit. And to do that, you're going to have to develop, you know, something that makes you stand out. And so, you know, what is your niche going to be? And then establish that and get blooming good at it because it's a very competitive field. Yeah, definitely great advice, Nick. And lastly, uh, where can people learn more about yourself? Oh, good question. There's not a huge amount of me on. <laughs> I've just started writing a couple of articles for for Martin in his website HMMR Media. I do have Twitter at uh, it's what's at Lumley underscore Nick. That's probably the best place. Um, they won't find a huge amount on there. Um, but yeah, you're welcome to um, contact me, and I'm as I, I'm pretty pretty open to sharing things and to. You know, if I've got stuff of interest to people or people have got questions, I'm pretty open to sharing and helping people where I can. Um, so, yeah, fire away if you want to. Yeah, that's great. And we'll we'll share links uh, to that in the show notes and obviously links to your, your two articles that we mentioned. Uh, Nick, thanks very much. Uh, all the best. Safe travels to New Zealand, Australia. Hope uh, all goes well there. And all the best with the, with the new position in Edinburgh. Cheers. Thank you. Much. Thank you very much. So there you go, another great podcast. Thanks again, Nick, for uh, sharing those insights into your career and uh, your strength and conditioning philosophy. And all the best uh, in the next couple of weeks uh, over in New Zealand and Australia with Scotland Sevens and all the best, of course, to your new uh, role with Edinburgh. Uh, in the meantime, guys, please check out rugbyrenegade.com. Loads more articles and podcasts to come. If you don't want to miss out, then please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Uh, tune in whatever podcasts you use and uh, please give us a five-star review until next time thanks for listening to the rugby renegade podcast for more quality rugby strength and conditioning information check us out at rugbyrenegade.com rugby renegade building machines